0: Hello and welcome to another episode of Table Talk. This is where we try and take a topic and connect it back to the Christian faith. And we're not doing that for people who, you know, would call themselves religious. We really want to help people just have a little window into into the Christian world. And um, Graham, we've got a hot and spicy subject, I would say.
1: Absolutely. I would say we're definitely on the sort of hotter end of the scale. If we were at Nando's sauces we'd definitely be up there, wouldn't we?
0: Okay, so here we go. Are junior doctors overworked and underpaid? If they are, then what is the motivation as a junior doctor to keep going? Is it the gold pot at the end of the rainbow, the big fat consultant's wage? Is it service to the patients, the NHS, duty to the country? Is it because you're trying to please your family? I don't know, but we're going to find out. And we've got a full house in our virtual studio. We've got a couple of junior doctors and a consultant welcome guys welcome joe abby and tom to the table Talk virtual studio hello
2: hey thanks, guys. For us. thanks for
1: having
2: us how's it. that intro guys it's almost as if you just said it off the cuff yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's like he's done this before
0: okay guys we want to get to know you so let's go with joe first Joe what is your current job and where are you at in your medical career? Talk to us.
2: Okay yeah so I am a consultant ear nose and throat surgeon in central London. been a consultant for I'm into my fourth year now. Nowadays specialise very much in ears so ears and hearing problems for adults and kids from little babies up until very elderly patients. Yeah that's me I'm also a husband and out of two.
0: Brilliant. Welcome, Joe. Thanks so much for joining us. Abby, let's go to you. Where are you coming Hello. in from,
3: Abby? I'm in Newcastle at the moment.
0: Brilliant. And what's your job? Where are you at in your medical career?
3: I've recently finished my foundation training. So your first 2 years as a doctor. And I'm currently in, we call it an F3 post. So like an out of training year where my plan is to pick up shifts as and when and try and get some exams and things like that done this year and then apply for the next stage in training.
1: Abby, thanks for that. I'm always, I'm always to be honest with you, quite in awe of doctors' willingness and ability to do exams. I've got a few friends that are doctors and I'm just, you know, Ten years in, and they're still doing exams. <laughs> I was like, I, I don't know if I could handle that. So I'm always a bit in awe of it when I hear it. Tom, how about you? uh Hi, yeah So I'm Tom. I'm I live in London with my wife, and I am a at the beginning of my surgical training. So probably about ten years behind <laughs> Joe, a year ahead of Abby quick, And Jay. yeah, I'm starting in orthopedic surgery. That's what I'm doing. My first year of that, my first week of that, actually. Brilliant. Thanks, Tom. And so maybe if we go back round, when did you know you wanted to be a doctor, and why did you want to? go down that route i guess it's a, a medical school interview question that isn't it so is it give you my medi- yeah, it's like so <laughs> what, when we, you give want us go- the
0: real answer we don't want you um,
1: you're not being interviewed your, now yeah you're not being interviewed <laughs> now <laughs> um I don't know. I think I'm thinking. I wanted to I'm be... Thinking, Tom. Like thinking back to your interview. What's the answer you wish you could have given if you didn't have to be really professional? <laughs> <laughs> that is a good. That is a good question. I, <laughs> I I don't I don't like being sat at a desk, but I do like seeing people. And I like I like so I've always liked orthopedic surgery, which is what I'm, what I'm started doing because that's on your feet, getting your hands dirty, and getting involved with big operations, which I quite like. And you see some some crazy injuries, which I enjoy seeing and helping make better. So that's that's what I like about orthopedics. <laughs>
0: surgery it's orthopedic yeah. surgery where you get the you know the hacks all out and you're like you know clamping them down
1: and all of that yeah yeah so you've got a lot, lot of saws and drills, yeah. and, hammers, drills yeah. and metal work brilliant and that's what you deal with and it's, it's quite kind of big and obvious abby what
0: about you was there like a, a, a moment where you're just like i want to be a doctor
3: i think well we all have to do a quiz at school to, you know, where you answer like a yes or no after a question well, I takes that. you down this line. That told me I should go into healthcare. I'd always kind of had it in the back of my mind, but never really thought that I could do it. There was, there was never a point. It was more of a kind of, I'm going to try each step and see how it goes.
0: You know those school surveys. There's work.
1: <laughs> yeah. And yeah. I remember with mine, it said I should be a stockbroker, and the top rated <laughs> question was because I said that I didn't mind working evenings and weekends. And I'm like, you should not be asking fourteen year olds these questions. I I had no idea what I was talking about and that set me down I mean that did actually influence my life quite a lot because I picked a lot of subjects off the back of that so I'm glad that it worked out for you Abby but it was kind of oh, um, sorry Joe what was what was your story
2: yeah well I'm i am at the other end of the spectrum to Tom in that I operate now on the on the smallest bone in the body which is uh, just behind the eardrum and I guess you know I, I don't know if I always planned it that way but I was, I was always kind of fascinated with this see documentaries and videos of you know being able to kind of give hearing back. And I always found that combining tech with surgery to give people's hearing back. But I think in terms of wanting to be a doctor, that probably came for as long as I remember, really. I grew up in a medical environment and the combination of working with people, being part of people's story in a very privileged way Mm -hmm. and, and using science Um, in that as well we should have a medical school
1: answer joe
2: yeah that
0: was (laughs) Um, okay guys thanks for coming on table talk you're on here because we really want to unpack this topic of junior doctors are they overworked and underpaid and think about the motivations as well for being a doctor and continuing in that and i guess you're coming at it from different angles joe you're a long way through that and you're kind of looking back thinking about obviously junior doctors coming through and then abby and tom you're at various stages in your more junior doctor career so thank you we thought we'd start with a bit of fact checking just you know just for our audience that they they might not be that close uh, to the facts like us so we're gonna hit you with some kind of statements and you guys are going to reflect on them do you agree disagree with the sentiment Are you up for it? Go for it. Okay. First one is,
1: so junior doctors are entitled to a 2% annual pay rise as part of a four-year deal, but other staff are getting 4.5%. The 2% offer is just a slap in the face. And that is a quote from a recent BBC article. Tom, is that true or false? I definitely think the, well, so the slap in the face bit's obviously subjective, but the objective fact there, I think, is true. I think we are getting a two percent pay rise over is it an annual two percent pay rise since 2016 that's
3: as far as i'm aware it was when um, there were all the strikes previously about the doctor's contract junior doctor's contract changing and that was what was agreed and then since then nhs workers were given this pay rise except because the junior doctors were on a different contract it we're still on the old, well, on this one that was agreed a couple of years ago. Yeah, Was that with Jeremy Hunt? <laughs> oh,
0: with Jeremy. I remember it all oh, with Jeremy Hunt.
2: Yeah, I was a junior doctor at that time. Um, oh, go yes, on, talk us through the, it. Well, the, the, <laughs> there was a lot of unhappiness around that time. but 2016 junior contract sort of made a big shift from vocation to and uh, commitment amongst junior doctors to this kind of feeling that this is this is just a job. I think that's, yeah. we've definitely seen a shift in, in attitudes inside the hospital since then. But yeah, I think what Tom and Abby w- were saying is that s- since that time, there was a five, six year uh, agreement that the, you know, junior doctor's pay would increment by 2%. And so this latest pay deal covers lots of other aspects of the NHS, but the junior doctors are excluded from that. Um, which is unfortunate.
0: Okay, the more subjective bit—is that a bit of slap in the face? You think, Tom and Abby, that the the rest of your colleagues are in store for a four point five, and you you're down for a two? How are you feeling about it?
1: I think I think it is. I think it's. I personally don't engage too much with the little nitty gritties, just because I find them quite demoralising. So I think I'd I'd avoid looking at how that plays out, just because if I did look at it too heavily, <laughs> I'd probably get too disgruntled and become less of a this is just the job and more of a this is a job i should leave yeah i I think it is it is a bit of a slap in the face when you look at it sorry sorry for
0: bringing it to your attention (laughs) (laughs) Right, abs.
3: i feel two sides about it because it doesn't seem completely fair but i do think the people that are getting it definitely deserve to have it but then i think it from the doctor's side it does kind of seem like well why why don't you think the doctors deserve to have it as well so i'm not completely decided exactly how i feel about it but looking at it it doesn't doesn't seem super fair.
1: okay graham what's up next the next quote we also have exams and training that is mandatory that we have to pay for with this paltry salary after six years of medical school we already have huge student debts
0: do you agree with that
1: sentiment yeah i feel pretty strongly about that one historically medics have always had to pay for their exams it's not a surprise when you know you have to pay for the exams but i think when you get more into how that actually plays out over your over your career and at what times you're paying for things and also the extra things we're now paying for for example i've just had to pay 300 pounds for the software so that i can track my portfolio which is and in, in our talk at the royal college of surgeons last week they said you know don't don't shoot the messenger we're just telling you you have to pay for it yeah i find that kind of thing very frustrating and then you, you do the maths and you realize the surgical exams that at the bottom end of the surgical ladder are two part and the first one's 500 to 600 pounds and the second one's closer to 1300 pounds so immediately you're talking about nearly two and a half grand just for your software and your two exams to get through those two years when you look at your take home pay that's quite a hard high percentage of your take home pay on the verge of cost of living crisis with a backdated 2% pay rise it's quite a big pill to swallow uh, a tough build to swallow and a, a big tough build to swallow.
0: What you yeah, should get think... into, Tom, is writing textbooks yeah. like Joe and then you can just cream <laughs> money off other yeah. medics. That's what you need to get into.
2: Passive it's sources not... of
1: income like Joe. Uh,
2: do you know <laughs> Joe, what think... how many textbooks are you on now? <laughs> I think I, I think I've, I've made about a ninety ninety P per textbook sold, but <laughs> it don't but that you can't put a price on on the joy it brings when someone says they've read it. So, but look, you know what? I think Tom is touched on a point which is part of a much wider issue, which is that some of the things about cost of living are generational, aren't they? You know, and, and there's a temptation, isn't there, for healthcare workers to kind of come across like think we've got it harder than anyone else in society. And, I, and I, you know, nothing I'm about to say is suggesting that these challenges don't exist in other sectors. But in medicine, you've, you've got a career where it's a six year degree. You decide on it at the age of eighteen, and even when you graduate, you've got a lot of the large costs of training. Particularly if you're going to something you know relatively competitive like like surgery, as Tom's doing, there are loads of upfront costs to getting good at that. Which, in the past, were always just assumed that you would you would foot those costs because, of course, doctors are paid well, aren't they? And so, why why would it be an issue? But you've got that in the in the background of over. You know, fifteen years, doctors' payers in real terms dropped by thirty percent, and that's and so when you know Abby and Tom are touching on the increments, yeah, I mean two percent versus four percent. You know, on the face of it, why should we mind when we're doing such an invigorating job? But it's if every year there's a little chip away like that, then over fifteen years it becomes quite big, and suddenly you've got a situation where where you were relatively well off in terms of you know on one salary you could buy a house and board f- private school fees. Now you're in a situation where we're, we're a long way from that, but the expectations haven't changed, so you're still expected to you know pay for your portfolio, pay for your courses and it's that expectation disappointment I always think is is the probably the biggest mm. stress in all this because you you make that decision at 18 and it's a bit of a long-term bet. You know, you don't know if your expectations are going to be fulfilled from this career until you get into your 30s when, you're, when other things are happening in your life, like becoming a parent or, or whatever else it might mm. be. Really interesting. And I think this next quote, Jack, really, yeah. I was pretty shocked by this Let's one. Let's get into the guts of
0: it in. now. Go this on, is career. punchy.
1: So first-year junior doctors currently earn £14.13 and pence an hour, assuming a 40-hour week but they regularly work much longer hours. So doctors are working long night shifts, saving people's lives for not much more than minimum wage. (laughs) That is a lot of the chitter chatter around in F1, F2s, so that's the kind of first two years of being a doctor that's a lot of the chit chat is like how how little are we paid when they're doing the night shifts and things and like we, i'm about to do a weekend t- from friday saturday sunday and I'll, I'll be working a 39 hour weekend for those days so you know i quite enjoy the weekends in hospital the weekend is is fun i, I like the skeletal staffing but yeah when you look at the pay you divide your hours into your, your pay slip it's not it's not great and like when people kind of do the maths and they know the maths well they'll spread that round and then it, it really demoralizes a workforce because you, you think you, you're doing the job you always wanted to do and you're loving it but then you then that kind of eats away at your morale i think and then secondarily low morale in
2: in hospitals eats away at patient care i think this is potentially a really emotive and potentially triggering topic for loads of reasons and whenever doctor pay is talked about in the media there'll be people on the outside that look in and say look you're paid better on average than many other professions and on the face of that that's true Uh, which in a way compounds the sort of feeling of um, injustice on the inside when junior doctors are doing hours which work out at figures like that because of when you compare it against the cost of training six years of med school which is now nine thousand pounds a year with nine percent interest on earnings over a certain amount and then to complicate that you've also got intergenerational dynamics in that senior doctors you know consultants and sort of my cohort might they can say well you know we were paid the same but we put the hard hours in and the rewards will be there eventually but I think probably what we need there is a bit more intergenerational empathy in that the economics are so different now and so therefore whereas in the past yes you would work those hard hours you'd arguably it was harder a generation ago you would have to apply for a new job every six months you could work, you know, certainly my parents' generation worked 120 hour weeks and were on call one in two. And so they, that group could turn around and say, you know, what are you guys can, com- can, about but, 10
1: medications, didn't they?
2: <laughs> <laughs> and also, there was so much different in terms of the camaraderie, the expectations, yeah. you know, it was very much like do your best rather than, you know, you must get this right first time. And, and the economics, you know, the sort of real terms, pay erosion over time means that whereas you could work hard and pay off your student debts very quickly and start building up in life now, the the generation behind Tom probably will graduate, work at those historically lower figures and then not have reached net zero before they want to become parents. And then you've got the cost of childcare in order to go to work and suddenly you're entering your mid-30s as a doctor in London and you may not have actually saved anywhere near anything for deposit, let alone anything else. So it's a kind of compounding issue, which when it's played out in the press, is far too overly simplified. You'll sort of say, well, this is the hourly figure, but then other professions get paid this and that. If you don't actually appreciate the cost of training and the, if you don't actually factor all that in, then it's not. It's easy to misunderstand.
0: And, and a key element of that is geography, which is interesting because we've got Abbey in Newcastle and Tom in London. Abby, would you like to speak to that? How you find being a junior doctor in Newcastle on your salary there?
3: It is very different. I think obviously the cost of living in London is a lot greater. Well, I just think the good things about medicine in that like we finish uni and we go straight into a job where everybody's applying for the same job and then you're all kind of going through the conveyor belt together. So, I never really felt like I was on my own in doing that. And then basically everybody goes straight into a job straight after uni that is going to be a career for their whole lives if they do want to stay at it. I, I, I do completely agree with the fact that the pay hasn't changed and that it it's not where it should be. But I think at the same time, I really enjoy being a doctor up in Newcastle. And, and I think there are loads of positives in it as well, in that I'm never worrying, could I lose my job next month and have to apply for another one? Because I started this training programme and I know it's going to be a whole two years and then I'll enter another training programme and I know I know that's a set amount of time and that's going to progress me on in the career. Just kind of, yeah, looking on the other side. But but yeah, I think the facts mm-hmm. and the figures do speak for themselves. Thanks, well. It's
0: it's it's a clear path and you're not gonna suddenly have your job pulled from you by the sounds of it so that can be quite reassuring in some industries you don't have you know you could lose your job three times in 10 years yeah true joe just to bring you back in in this subject are there other staff in hospitals or generally in the medical profession that we should be conscious of in this conversation as well that have it pretty tough just to widen it back out is there anyone else you're conscious of in this discussion
2: yeah, for sure. I think there's a lot of themes that apply to, you know, multiple fields. And it's, it's important at that, at this stage to acknowledge that the NHS is one mega team. Perhaps people can sort of relate to understanding what doctors and nurses do. But, you know, there's so many different fields, whether it be dietetics, speech therapy, physiotherapy, teacher of the deaf, psychology. You know, there's so many different fields. I and mean, I haven't even started talking about admin. I guess this episode is focused on junior doctors, but I guess any of those fields for whom the NHS is their main and only viable employer in this country for the first 10 years of their career is going to be affected by a lot of these themes. I guess um, any, any of those professions that have heavy out-of-hours work and on-call commitment, that, that that's going to be effective. Um, so, you know, particularly uh, nursing is going to fall into that category. And the reason that's uh, important is because as you get, as you become a parent, then suddenly out-of-hours working, is a whole different kettle of fish compared to when you're young and enthusiastic in your early twenties. Because if you're at work and you've got kids, then you have to fund out of hours childcare. And if that out of hours childcare is becoming increasingly expensive, as everything is with the cost of living, then suddenly you you reach a crunch point where it's not just about you and you anymore. So yeah, so I think, you know, a lot of the, the themes we're touching on are relevant to to lots of other healthcare professions. i touched on some great bits of positivity, which we should just acknowledge really that medicine is like in terms of job satisfaction brings some moments that are absolutely precious in terms of what you can do in people's lives, the privileged position you're given in people's lives. And, you know, largely like job insecurity is not something we ever have to have to worry about. So there are loads of positives about it. And, you know, I was a junior doctor for 11 years before I became a consultant I would say, you know, and and you guys have known me during some of those younger (laughs) years, so you can probably remember that sometimes I disappeared for weeks on end doing nights. I suddenly had to uproot to another town and then another one. So I guess you uproot away from your social life. But, you know, I loved it to bits and I love my job now, but I have to think about this in terms of now recruitment for the next generation and accept that people are coming from all sorts of different backgrounds and it's not just about personal greed and wages this is about to answer the question about are junior doctors underpaid junior doctors underpaid if the salary that's on offer if they're able to attract the kind of qualities that you would want in your doctor then it is enough and if it's not if it's not Mm -hmm. enough to recruit someone of the kind of person you'd want who's going to stay in that job and do it joyfully and stay in the NHS rather than leave then arguably that's the answer to the question about are the salaries enough? And my anxiety is maybe the needle has turned. And if you think about what you you want in your doctor, what makes an average doctor a good one? Things like obviously being able to cope with high-volume work, cope with stressful and emotive work, be emotionally intelligent, be a good communicator – they're not necessarily things that are ubiquitous. You need to sort of be able to, like any employer, you know, you want to be able to attract someone who's got those skills, either developed them or to some extent has those sort of characteristics. And so that's where salaries and wage become important beyond just what's coming into my bank balance at the end of each month Mm.
1: yeah that's that's kind of a level-headed way of explaining a lot of my point of view being so just to touch back on the geography thing so abs is working in newcastle i'm working in london we're at a similar level of our in our careers so there's an idea of london waiting which is they supplement your salary because you're in london because the cost of living is higher but so in in my job that london waiting is about four percent. So I'm paid four percent more than someone living in anywhere with the, where the cost of living is less. That basically accounts for my a little bit of my electricity bill every every month. At the moment, it doesn't it doesn't account for the actual cost of living difference. And also, I think this year not all medical students got jobs in the NHS. So I thought that was an absolute scandal that you're essentially funding more places in medical school to put more doctors into a system that is not in its best years, and they're not providing them with jobs, so it doesn't help the NHS at all. I think I think it might've been thousands of, um, of medical students that didn't get jobs. So you, you don't definitely have a job if you go to medical school now. I think one of the other things slightly wildly that winds me up is, I think it was 2016 when George Osborne started talking about streamlining services, and the people making decisions have been talking about streamlining services, and at the moment, talking about cutting top-rate taxes. So essentially, you've got someone saying we're happy to tax less, but the way we'll fund that is we'll we'll just save costs on a, on on public services, and that means that essentially for for our day to day work that means we're less well supported and we're still being paid the same and relatively so much less. It's very it's very demoralising for a system when that's the case. And then on top of that, I guess I'm I'm burning a little bit because I started my what was my dream training job yesterday. We, we're on a rotor which needs eight people. And essentially, there's one other trainee on the rotor, and they just sort of semi-staff the rest of the rotor. So immediately, I'm kind of looking around going, how am I going to build any camaraderie with my colleagues? How am I going to have that camaraderie that Joe talked about in, in times gone by where you're, you're all in it together doing your best? And I'm thinking, am I going to have to cover for people because actually we're, we're short-staffed on this rotor? So am I going to be being called in or being pressurized to do extra shifts? But the other thing is we need role models. And what I see at the moment is, a couple of guys who were a few years ahead of me so they're further down the line of orthopedics training two out of three so the two other guys have dropped out and they've started they've started pursuing other things so they've taken a year out of training but from what from my experience everyone who's stepped out from a year for a year has not come back so that's quite demoralizing when those are the guys who were sort of influencing you and training you and feeding into your mindset that orthopedics is a great career to go down when they're actually burning out two years down the line or trying to have kids and that means they There's so much strain on them that they they fail their exams or they don't pass their annual appraisal. It's quite an emotional one for me because orthopedics was always my dream career. I wouldn't leave the career for the attractiveness of the essence of another job. It wouldn't be that I look at another job and go, oh, that's what I actually want to do with my life. The only thing would be the title of this, I'm overworked and underpaid. And I know Joe would probably find that hard to hear as someone who looks back and medical trainees and wants them to be with high morale camaraderie and uh, motivated and i'd like to think that would uh, that would be me in a, in a different system
2: you know what it's what you're seeing i think in tom's words is is what i see as a slow professional atrophy which i i really think is related to economic stress and expectation disappointment so that last year's G- gmc survey of doctors found that up to a third are feeling overwhelmed with their workload And 25% are thinking about leaving the profession. To me, that's not just, you know, a few snowflakes or Tom needing to harden up. That, to me, is a systemic problem, a systemic issue that, you know, either is a generational issue, people of Tom's age are just entitled, which I don't believe to be true, but is you will see said in the media. Or it's that we've just let a slow economic creep happen in the profession such that, people are starting at 18 and reaching 28 and finding that it's completely different to how they they foresaw it and you know with professional atrophy leads you know the the job will always be filled to some degree although even that's changing but what you lose is the things that always happen for free in the profession so writing the textbooks and doing your papers at the weekend and your audits all the things that made medicine in this country go from basically safe to excellent and world-class a lot of that is based on the things that doctors do for free and if you have economic stress then that leads to atrophy of all those things and so ultimately it will fall on the patient and being a patient in a hospital where staff are unhappy is a scary place to be yeah that's my anxiety i guess and I
1: think Joe as well, like the, the my concern hearing you speak about that is that this is clearly a really complicated issue and it's obvious it's it, it sounds like it's a it's a really serious issue. And it's not just junior doctors, as you say, there's lots of other other people involved here, be it nurses or other other staff within the NHS that are obviously impacted by this. I think that word atrophy is, is just such a great word for mm-hmm. it because it's sort of this slow, gradual decline. And that that's really, really worrying. And I think the other thing you mentioned that is on my mind as we listen to this, and as I say, I was just so shocked by that £14, 13 an hour number because I've got friends who I know are doctors and I know how hard they worked. But also the fact that if you if you haven't got any help financially from parents or from family, you're in many ways going to be completely excluded from this. And Tom, I think you said earlier, like it's very much a sort of meritocracy in some ways, because you've you've done well in school, you've applied and you've studied hard and then you've kind Mm. of got in there. But if you are ruled out of that meritocracy from day one, because you just, you know, it's just a pipe dream, you couldn't possibly afford it. Think how many people we're missing out on who could be brilliant doctors, nurses or staff in the NHS. And that for me is just really kind of shocking to see it like this and to think we're probably missing out on a massive chunk of the population who could be brilliant at this well you guys might disagree with me but i don't know whether people actually have the foresight to see that that would be the case i don't know because i think at school you're encouraged to if you're doing well at school you're encouraged to seek opportunities medicine could be an option and i don't think people foresee that that will be an issue financially in the future I don't think we're at that stage yet, but I think the danger of of it is is that going back to what you're saying about an atrophy in in the system is that people don't quite realize what that will mean for patients going down the line. And I think joe's Joe's the first to bring patients into the picture, but that's the, that's the scary thing is that as you you lose your best trainees because actually they just it doesn't it they can't do it anymore because of burnout or they see some other opportunity that is, works better for them, and they've had a realisation that it just won't work for their life. Because there's a point where it shifts from being focused on the service to being then, you don't want to call it selfish, but you have to think about yourself at some point. Yeah. Otherwise, you, if, you know that's when you get burnout, is if you're so committed to the service that you don't actually ever think about your own well-being.
2: And I think that, that you sort of touched on it, Graham, that it's, some of this is surprising or not well known about in public. But I think the reason for that is because, you know, until recently, to talk publicly like this about money was kind of taboo even this podcast actually five years ago would just be like oh you know why are you a doctor talking about money and it's because ultimately you know we are we go into this hopefully with the ultimate the sort of main focus of being in a job that's outward looking vocational professional thinking beyond the balance sheet and so money should be well down the priority list but I think in a way that's become part of the problem in that If the media sort of presents the salary as just a salary without presenting Mm. the costs of training and...
1: And Joe, I think like for me the argument should be, well, salary should be a low weighting for someone who wants to go in and be a doctor or a healthcare mm-hmm. professional. But actually, and, and that's fine, if that's your view, like, fair enough, once it gets to a point of this atrophy, and, and sort of, you know, that 30% pay cut over over a period of time that you're talking about in real terms, I mean, that's just, it kind of becomes untenable. So regardless of your
2: weighting, it's like, I, just, I can't really do this. And I think you know the university fees going up on a degree mm-hmm. that's six, five or six years long, yeah. Um, that's that's a, a, lot. B- a big swing.
1: So we we've gone through a lot of this issue. I think, I think it's been really, really helpful listening to you and, and hearing sort of your experiences of it and your perspectives, but like, what are some of the things, all of that in mind that keep you going? What are your motivations to keep going with this?
3: Definitely. One of my motivations is to know more and be better at treating people. I think with the whole kind of career side in mind, you I know we've kind of talked about a bit of a conveyor belt, but you you go through these exams and you learn from them and you learn from treating people. And the further you get on in your career, the better able you are to look after a really sick person. And that is pretty amazing. But then to then to get to registrar or consultant level to be the person in charge and to kind of oversee someone's care and manage that team. That's a massive motivation for me is to almost try and be be the top of my game and be the best that I can in caring for patients. I
2: love that, Abby. Yeah, yes. I'd, that was is cool, wasn't it? I'd, I'd echo that. And I think if I use my own example of doing surgery to restore hearing, it's had a big impact on a number of people's lives that I have been involved Please in are. over a long period of time. And so it's difficult to put a price on that. It's, it's a very privileged and special feeling to be to feel needed and valued in that way. So valued by patients in the public valued by your colleagues so
0: tom (laughs) do you relate to that like is it these personal you know like you actually have got someone in your mind that you've changed their life like that must be so motivating to think they're going home well
1: yeah i think definitely the the crux of the job is amazing you know the the equivalent orthopedics that i'm training to do the one of the key Um, operations that they we do at the start of core surgical training is um, fixing someone's hip when they've fallen so generally an elderly person falls and breaks their hip one of the operations that's the first on our training list is to fix that and get them walking again as soon as possible And that's incredible that adds a huge quality of life to people yeah I think my motivation to keep going would be to get better at that and and learn more and actually the essence of the job I, I absolutely love you know don't let the negativity of the, the surrounding discussions get away from the fact that the, I think all three of us would say we absolutely love the job and it's a privilege to be involved in someone's life at their most vulnerable point yeah. as in you're, you're involved in someone's life and turn hopefully turn their life around or in some situations at the end of people's life make them comfortable and you have the skills and the training to do that and that's an incredible privilege to be so involved at that time and yeah we love that.
0: Thanks Tom. I thought at this point it'd be good just to bring in your guys Christian faith I know each of you guys would describe yourselves as as committed Christians and that is big in each of your lives and Tom how does your Christian faith help you when you know you've been really honest like there's probably some quite low moments is this all worth it Mm. why am I doing it long shifts just over minimum wage does anyone even value me? Do you know what I mean, those sort of questions. Should I just up sticks and mm. go to Australia or whatever your friends are doing? How's your Christian faith played into that and th- th- those sort of thoughts?
1: Yeah, I think massively. I mean, my Christian faith gives me an identity that I don't have to clamber for. I don't have to climb a ladder of success to get an identity. My identity is God-given. Uh, he loves me despite my shortfalls and Because of Jesus, I can have a relationship with him. That gives me an identity that no successful career, whether it's massively rewarding financially or not, can give you. I think the identity thing changes not only how you look at yourself, but also how you look at your patients. So your identity is that you're fearfully and wonderfully made by God uh, and one of his children. And their identity is that they are created in God's image as well. And that gives a huge Motivation to treat them with so much respect, treat them equally to you, treat them equally to how you treat your own father or mother or grandmother or grandfather, and that's you can't really give a better motivation to be a good, caring doctor than that than having a having that identity. So, yeah, I think that's that's what my my Christian faith does for me as a doctor.
0: brilliant. Abs, would you want to add to that?
3: I completely agree with Tom. I wouldn't been able to put it so eloquently, but I completely agree with what he just said thinking about work there's a verse in the bible in the book of colossians that says whatever you do work at it with all your heart working for the lord not for human masters which just well it helps me at work because he's put me in this career i'm a doctor i'm gonna work at it because he wants me to (laughs) i'm gonna work for him even if like it is it can be really hard and it can you can have some really low moments but that verse definitely keeps me going.
0: Thanks, Habs. And to what extent do you think you could cope if you weren't a Christian?
3: Yeah, I think it would it would definitely be harder, especially given, yeah, what, what we've just said. I think I'd probably be looking for identity in a career in medicine and in what people think of me publicly, kind of how many publications I can get or travelling off to Australia and doing all sorts of cool, cool travely things, which, uh, yeah, I'd love to do, but it's not... It's not the be-all and end-all.
1: I agree. Yeah. So you'd probably be looking for your identity in either your career or your bank accounts or your holiday or travelling experiences, I'd, I'd imagine. So, yeah, it's a privilege to know that your identity is given to you by God.
2: Yeah, Tom, I think you summed up the whole subject of identity so beautifully. I think it's it's so true. And, if yeah, if we're to take Jesus as our greatest example, he he came to serve and not to be served. He wants us to love one another like he loved us and medicine just provides like a great platform to do that and, mm-hmm. and be that and try and imitate that as best we can so yeah I guess just remembering that is a great encouragement to do it joyfully and wholeheartedly and
1: in, in the gospels Jesus was an incredible doctor he um, helped the lame walk and the blind see but then he also knew the, the patient's greatest need which is a difficult one but for us as, as doctors in, in a position like we are but ultimately we know that everyone's greatest need is, is their position before god not that they have their cochlear implant put in right but ultimately <laughs> that they get to know jesus and have their identity given to them but that that the cochlear implants are very, very yeah good.
0: <laughs> they're good but yeah that is a, such a good point tom yeah like of course jesus could clear out hospitals but what he was more concerned about mm. is that they know what you've just described, that they can have a relationship with God in heaven as their father, that yeah. that is even if you can't walk, that's even such great news that can be not only transformative in this life, but give you eternal life. you know, Jack?
1: Yeah. Sorry, just to, just to chip in on that, because I so my wife and I are helping out on a thing called the Alpha Course at the moment, and last night was week one and one of the guys that was interviewed i think he was the head of the human genome project you know he was a doctor he was a biologist a scientist And he said that throughout his entire life and education and study, it was all about the theory. And then he was confronted by patients and sitting at their bedside and seeing them in really kind of dire straits sometimes. And he talked about one woman in particular who was an elderly lady and she had severe heart disease. And she basically went through a really severe chest pain and it was horrible. They were trying to treat her and it was just really, really uncomfortable for her and really painful. And then she got through it and she was sitting there and he was talking to her afterwards. And she said, "Do you know what, doctor, like my faith is the thing that gets me through this. What, what, what gets you through? All of this study, he had a PhD, he was a doctor, a scientist, a biologist, he'd done all this work. And he was suddenly confronted with a question that he'd never thought about and was completely unprepared to answer and had nothing to contribute. And he was just like, whoa. And I just thought that was really profound in those moments mm. You've got this incredible background of of research and education and, and intellect and skill. And yet that fundamental question he was just completely stumped by. And this lady lying in bed who just had, you know, horrible heart pain was basically educating him, you know, and, and he looked into it. And I think that was the start of a journey for him. But I just think it's so fascinating listening to you guys, because you're first hand with this. And it's so interesting hearing your experiences of it.
0: Uh, I wanna leave with a final question, Graham. We often ask this one, I feel like, yeah. what would you say? to your kids if they were like I want to go and work for the NHS and be a doctor what would you say I'm going to come to Joe first because you've actually got kids
2: (laughs) well I mean I guess my role as, as a parent is to help my children understand the world for what it is and so you know on the face of it if my if my children want to go and work for the nhs then i'll be joyful for all the different opportunities it will bring them into the world (laughs) maybe send them a link to to the table talk podcast and be like here kids (laughs) (laughs) have a listen to this
0: recorded it in 2022 look at me now okay a bit more hypothetical abs but suppose you had some kids (laughs) who wanted to go to medicine what what would you say to them (laughs)
3: I tell them what my experience was. I imagine things will probably be different by the time these hypothetical kids want to go to med school. But if they really want to, go for it. (laughs) Like they can yeah. Knowledge of the highs and the lows. I think so long as they're informed about what they're doing, I think, yeah, go for it.
1: Tom, I think it's a hard one. I think a lot, a lot of my colleagues would say they would tell their children to avoid it, but that can be that can be kind of an outburst in in the in the face of some testing moment. I think your kids will see how you're managing life, I guess, but then it doesn't reflect on how it was for a stint of it. Joe's kids will hopefully see him in the next few years and see what working life does to him in the evenings, whether he comes home ratty and deflated or <laughs> jubilant and excited. I think I definitely encourage them to work hard whatever they're doing.
2: You'll yeah, to have a follow up episode. Okay. <laughs> okay. Well, We'll do that <laughs> doctors <laughs> uncut was, doctors. i'll be the one i'll be the one disgruntled and these two will be on on harley street you know <laughs> yeah
1: look i just want to say like thanks so much for coming on here joe abs tom I, I know this is a pretty emotive topic it's clearly a complicated one and there's lots of emotion around it so really appreciate you coming on and sharing your experience of it and thank you for taking the time yeah i like, really appreciate it so I'm going to oh,
2: and i time. think
0: one thing that's left me i'm not going to be patronizing i'm just i know the facts i'm just gonna like, ha, you know how are you doing this week tom how's it going how's it feel you know yeah. maybe give you a little bit of a tap on the back saying you know you're doing a great job but on a serious note i am every time i walk into hospital and it's fairly regular with young kids often with kind of weird situations of like i've dropped actually i did i dropped a pan on one of their heads, um, not so long ago, <laughs> um, uh, completely by accident. It's like safeguarding. Not a safeguarding <laughs> issue. I am incredibly grateful, and I do, I, I, really am, from the bottom of my heart, in the least patronising way. So on that note I'd like to say goodbye. Thank Thanks, for Thank, Thank you. Bye.
2: Thanks, guys. Bye, your
1: Thanks, everyone. Bye. 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 bye, bye, bye